Fellowship Church, I do want to thank you for uh, your very faithful giving, uh, especially through that period of COVID, uh, where things were strange, and you all were very faithful, and we could keep things going and keep improving and progressing because of your faithfulness in giving. Uh, I'm going to do something a little different than what was planned today, a lot different than what was planned today, because today we were going to finish Numbers uh, by walking through that last chapter. It's only 13 verses, Numbers 36, uh, but sometimes life happens. I'm very reminded that I'm uh, technically bivocational these days, uh, wrapping up a summer school, dropping off my daughter in Alabama, upcoming funeral, wedding today, uh, after church, grab lunch, head down to Indiana. Uh, Alyssa and David's wedding, so I'll be praying for them. Um, and I was wanting to revisit Psalm 1 two weeks from now. Next week, a uh, little treat for you, uh, uh, one of our elders, Aaron Grogan, will be sharing the word with you, so be praying for him and come ready to support him and amen him and laugh at all his jokes and everything. Um, but uh, the week after that, I was going to revisit Psalm 1, but I'm going to do that today, and I was, I was telling my wife earlier, uh, yesterday, when I was really feeling the pinch especially, and I thought, it's going to look like I'm doing Psalm 1 just to get out of the bind, because I could preach Psalm, uh, Numbers 36, I just I didn't feel like it was fully cooked, it's like pulling the pie out just a little too early. Uh, you can eat it, but I'd rather it, I'd rather it bake all the way. Uh, but my plan really was to revisit Psalm 1, and I say revisit not because I preached Psalm 1 here, but I actually preached Psalm 1 at last year's men's retreat, and uh, I had to preach that then. It was burning in my heart and my mind, and I haven't been able to shake it. It's still burning in my heart and in my mind, and I've been wanting to deliver that to the entire congregation. For those of you who are at the men's retreat, it might feel a little bit like a review, uh, but I hope that you can own and ingest this psalm in a way that you can pass it on to others. And I hope that it literally reshapes our church and how we think about important things. Uh, some of the things I'll share from Psalm 1 are not popular. Uh, but I hope it makes sense to you as we look at the text together. Please pray with me. Father, in the next few moments as we visit this uh, very important passage, important of course because you inspired it, especially important because it intersects so practically with where we are today as a, as a church, as a culture, uh, in this day and age. And Father, we pray that this would change our parenting, that this would change our discipleship, that this would change how we view church, how we view your word, how we view the world, and how we view the various problems we run into, God, in day-to-day -day life. Uh, may we walk away from this with uh, the value that you have here for us. Whatever we walked in here expecting this morning, Father, blow those expectations out of the water. Give us uh, something that is beyond what we even thought we might get here this morning. And give it to us, Father, from Psalm 1. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a ton here, and I want to try to move at a clip that is going to get us out at a decent uh, time, and by decent I just mean where we normally would go. Uh, I want to talk to you today about counseling. And as soon as I say that word, your mind populates that field, like what does counseling mean? 
probably differently than I would want it to be, what I think Scripture wants it to be. Because what do we think of when we think of counseling? We think of an office, a professional that crosses their lap with a legal pad, pulls the glasses down over their nose, looks over their glasses at you and asks you to talk about your feelings while you sit on a leather couch and explain your feelings and then you walk away wondering who did more talking, who did more receiving in that session. Uh, you pay them, they keep it private, they don't tell anybody else, and you decide how many times you want to go back uh, based on your perceived benefit of those sessions. That's counseling. Now, there was a time where counseling was, uh, you would never want anyone to know that you were going to counseling. And maybe some of you are still there. You don't want someone to know that you go to a counselor, that you need counseling. If somebody tells you, I think you need counseling, oh, it's like an offense, right? It's like they cut you, there's something wrong with you. Uh, I want to affirm, you need counseling, you need counseling, you need counseling, I need counseling. We all need counseling. And so I want us to continue, I affirm the, the movement, especially of Christians, of getting over that hump of counseling being a bad word, counseling being a weird thing, counseling being keep it hush, keep it secret, don't let anybody know it's a shameful thing. It's not a shameful thing. What's shameful is not admitting you need counseling. And uh, it is uh, especially dangerous if you wait till there's some humongous emergency to go get counseling. Right? You, you don't wait until the, the engine is you know, knocking and making all kinds of noise and you show up and you're like, okay, I finally took it in, but you didn't take it for the oil change. You didn't take it for the transmission fluid. You didn't take, you know, all those little lights, you just ignored them. And now it feels like it's falling apart. Now you take it to the garage. It's late to do that. And so I want to affirm the place of counseling in your life. You need counseling. I need counseling. What I'm skeptical of and what I think is dangerous is the vision of counseling that we have that I opened up with, with the professional, with the degrees on the wall, that sits with a legal pad, that is, uh, that you're booking sessions with outside of the church. I find that problematic, and I want to go to Psalm 1 to unpack that. And if you look at Psalm 1, you might be like, man, I've read Psalm 1 a hundred times, a thousand times. I've never thought about counseling. Well, you should, because it's exactly what it's about. I want to read the whole, ver the whole chapter. It's only six verses. And as we look at this chapter, I want you to see how this is about where to find counsel, where to get counsel. And then the whole rest of the psalm is what are the results of finding counsel in the right place and what are the results of finding counsel in the wrong place. So Psalm 1, hopefully you've, you've opened up to that. Uh, psalms are pretty much in the middle of your Bible and we're just in the first one here. Blessed is the man or woman, the person. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the, in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. 
You've got one person prospering, one person perishing. What is the difference between the two? You've got to trace it all the way up back to verse 1. Because one person is this kind of person, the other one is that kind of person. The person that prospers does this and does not do this. The person that perishes does this and does not do this. So there's a contrast, a duality that runs throughout the whole psalm. Be this person, not that person. If you want to be a blessed person, this is where you find it. And anyone ever seeking counseling ever is looking for that blessing, whether they see it that way or not. Your marriage is on the rocks, you want a better marriage. You don't know how to deal with trauma that happened to you when you were a child. You don't know what this overwhelming feeling of fear is when uh, you walk into a room and there are uh, too many people in there and you feel people claustrophobic or something. You're like, where's that coming from? You don't know how to interpret a recurring dream that scares you. You wake up in the morning and you don't know who to share that with. There's all kinds of things that we deal with. And we're seeking counsel or advice to try to figure out how to get past that. And you would feel a little more blessed if you could just get past that. But if you don't get past that, it's some kind of curse. It's something that weighs on you. It's a yoke. It's a difficulty. And so this psalm is saying, blessed is the person who doesn't find that blessing here, but rather finds it over there. Now, some translations translate blessed as happy, and I think that's okay as long as we don't think of happy as a merely emotional experience. It's more holistic and profound than that. It's a life-encompassing, God-involved joy. Blessedness. Blessedness is not about money. It's, it's not about constantly smiling. It's a deep sense of joy because ultimately things are good and you're prospering. That's blessedness. And I don't think we can find any other reason for counseling ever than to find some kind of blessing out of this difficulty that we're experiencing, whatever that difficulty might be. And there's a way to attain that blessedness. And that blessedness is not always going to look like a, a nice life. If you read through the rest of the Psalms, the blessed person is the, the subject of the Psalms. And life is hard. When you read through the Psalms, God, where are you? God, why are enemies surrounding me? Why am I in a valley of a shadow of death right now? Sometimes you're going to feel lost. Sometimes you're going to feel empty. Sometimes you're going to feel like God is far and you're going to wonder where He is. That doesn't mean you're not blessed. It means the blessed person has a deep-rooted joy through the hills and the valleys, through the darkness and the sunshine, pastures and rocky ground, there's still a blessedness that overcomes all of it because in the end, this person doesn't perish. This stuff isn't going to kill me. Those nightmares aren't going to kill me. This relational trouble I'm having isn't going to kill me. God is going to prosper me through the trials. That's blessedness. And so, blessedness is something that is real. It's what the Psalms are after. And there's a way to get it. This kind of blessedness that runs deeper than circumstances even though it's not oblivious to circumstances. It's not like you ignore pain and grief and difficulties, but you can persevere through pain and difficulties. And the place you find it is in God's counsel. God's counsel teaches you how to live in, under, and through any circumstance. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Not that counsel, but where? In the law of God. So if we, we look at this and it, we see that it talks about counsel and not finding an ungodly, wicked counsel, you don't want to find blessing there. This person does not walk in it. This person does not stand in it. This person does not sit in it. You see that triple repetition there in verse 1? If you're trying to memorize the psalm, that's one way to memorize it. This person doesn't walk, stand, or sit. And think about the de-evolution there. The person is walking, then the person stops walking. What are you doing when you stop walking? You're standing. What do you do when you stop standing? You're sitting. And there's a sort of slowing down. You start walking with the people, and then suddenly you're standing around with the people, then suddenly you're sitting with these people, and you're one of them. It sucks you in. Their ungodly counsel. But the blessed person doesn't walk in their counsel, doesn't stand in the way, doesn't sit in their seat. What are these people like? They're wicked, they're sinners, they're scoffers. They'll scoff at your other source of counsel. That's stupid. The Bible? What you need is Freud. What you need is Carl Jung. What you need is Skinner. The Bible? What are you, an idiot? Why don't you get your counsel from Aesop's fables? They scoff at it. But this person, the blessed person, doesn't walk, stand, or sit in their counsel, way, or seat, and he's not with the wicked sinners or scoffers. He delights in the law of the Lord. As we look at this word counsel, you might wonder, like I did, I mean, does counsel mean what we mean by counsel? Yes. When the Bible says counsel, it means what you mean by counsel. It doesn't mean sitting on a couch with a person with a legal pad necessarily, but it does mean what we mean by counsel. The word behind in the council, ba'etzat, you can look you know, at some textbooks. I'll just reference a couple of them really quickly if you're taking notes, but the theological word book of the Old Testament defines the word this way. Are you ready? Counsel. Advice. That is... And I quote, the act of telling someone what they should do based on a plan or a scheme. That's what the Hebrew word means. Giving someone advice to do something based on a plan. To do something about an issue based on a scheme. That's advice. If you went to a counselor and they're like, look, that was a really good session. And you're like, no, it wasn't. You didn't tell me to do anything yet. Oh, I'm not here to tell you to do anything about it. What are you talking about? I have this problem. I need your help to do it. No, no, no. You've got to discover how to just live with it. Would you go back for a second session? Probably not. Some of you are like, you're exactly describing my session, my last session with my counselor. Yeah, well, the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament has four definitions for this word that you have as counsel in your Bible, in your English translation. First definition is advice. The second definition is God-given advice. The third definition is a plan. The fourth definition is a God-given plan. Well, what's advice if it's not a plan? <laughs> when you give somebody advice, you're helping them plan to do something, essentially. So it's a God-given plan. It's how God helps you plan how to encounter whatever it is that you are dealing with, how to navigate it. So this is not uh, looking for mere opinions. This is wisdom for direction in the way you should go. That's why in verse 1, the word walk and way are used. You don't walk with them. You don't, it's your, how are you going about life? People walk this way. 
This is the way in which they go, and you can go that way, or you can go a different way. You can have a different walk, a different plan, a different scheme. You're following different advice. And so counsel is used this way, not just here. And you can look at English translations. If you don't go to the Hebrew, when you look at different English translations, you're basically asking, how do all these different translations who know the Hebrew, how do they translate it? And if you looked at Psalm 1, the word counsel is used in the ESV, the RSV, the NESB, the KJV. Advice is used in NLT, HSCSB, LEB, NRSV. And if you know those, great. If you don't, you use like Bible Gateway or Bible Hub or something like that and just click different translation, different translation. Advice, counsel, counsel, advice, it's the same thing. This psalm is not talking about something different than what you think you need when you're having an issue and you find you need to go talk to somebody. This is exactly what it's talking about. And it's telling you where to get it. It's telling you where to get it. And it's not the dude on the couch, necessarily. We go to the dude on the couch because he's got a degree from a secular university. Have you been around secular universities lately? You know what they're teaching their students? They're deterring students on purpose. You want to go to that guy? Where does this tell you? Is it, well, Psalm 1 is written in a day where there were no secular counselors. Are you kidding me? That's the counsel of the wicked. They do have counsel. There's a bunch of them. And they scoff at religious things. Or at least things that have to do with the Lord, our Lord Yahweh. Really quickly, you don't have to write these down, but I just wanted to show you that counsel is used. How is counsel used throughout the Old Testament, especially in the wisdom literature, the poetry literature? God's counsel is God's wisdom in Job 12. It's his insight and understanding in Proverbs 8 and Proverbs 21. God's counsel is his knowledge. Job 26, Job 38, Job 42. Do you want God's knowledge on the issue? If you could access God's knowledge on the issue, would you opt for that or the dude on the couch? Wisdom is God's, uh, God's counsel is God's knowledge. God's counsel is God's guidance in Psalm 73. God's counsel is God's instruction in Psalm 16, Psalm 32. God's counsel is listening to the Lord, Psalm 81, Psalm 106. God's counsel is wise guidance and planning, Proverbs 28, verse 18. Sometimes God's counsel is his reproof. And increasingly, even in Christian counseling, if you go to Christian universities, the counselors are taught to not tell the client, stop that, don't do that, that's wrong. Well, if you do that, you can't bring up sin. Sin can never be the problem. That degrades the client. You need to tell the client something positive. Well, the biblical definition of God's counsel is reproof in Proverbs 1.25 and verse 30. Sometimes it comes in the form of correction. Here's the problem. You're doing this wrong. There is such thing as wrong and right. All this counsel is as God defines it. Wisdom, insight, understanding, knowledge, guidance, instruction, listening to the Lord, wise guidance and planning, reproof. Because God's counsel is God's words. God's counsel is God's words. We're putting this up on the screen real quick so you don't have to turn to it. I think it's important to see it. Psalm 107, 
And we'll just look at 10 and 11, the, the verses 10 and 11. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. Why were they in that situation? For they had rebelled against the words of God, comma, and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Well, that's, that's a parallelism, meaning he's not saying they did this, and not only did they do that, they also did this. He's telling you what they did, and he's saying it in two different ways. God's counsel was scoffed at. They rejected God's words. Now, some of y'all may be like, okay, I, I, yeah, this is common sense. Is it, though? Is it, or do you see the Bible as church time, and every time you come into a problem in your life, you need somebody else? It's not in the Psalms. The Proverbs don't talk about critical race theory. The Psalms don't talk about how we should handle kids going back to school. The Psalms don't talk about how to vote. Yes, they do. God's counsel is God's word. God speaks to situations. We just don't go to it. We've relegated the Bible to churchy things, and it doesn't infiltrate the rest of our lives. That's the problem. We see it as irrelevant. We see it as helpful to create a doctrinal statement, and that's about it. And that's a dangerous place to be, and that's what this psalm is trying to utterly destroy. The psalm is telling us that the Bible is not to sit in a pulpit on display at your local synagogue or in the temple, but it's to be delighted in, it's to be searched, investigated by the person who's blessed. And so the counsel is not found with the wicked, the counsel is not found with sinners, and the counsel is not found in scoffers. One of the values of going through the book of Numbers is how easily Israel doesn't dump what God wants to say, but they integrate what God wants to say with other cultures. What does God repeatedly tell them? When you integrate it, you essentially reject what I'm saying. You can't integrate with what I'm, what I'm saying with what other people tell you when they're in conflict. Now, if you, those of you who are in junior high or high school, and you think, maybe I'll go be a counselor, okay, and you go, well, I want to go to a Christian university to get Christian counseling. Come talk to me first so I can tell you what they're going to give you. Within the Christian counseling world, you have a debate. Okay? The debate goes something like this. I'm going to oversimplify it a little bit. I think it's important for you. You have your counselors that say you only need the Bible. You don't need anything else. All you need is a verse, and that's it. You don't need anything else. Then you've got people, of course, that think the Bible is hardly valuable at all. What you really need is tried and true uh, journal of American psychology findings, that kind of stuff. And then you've got your integrationists in the middle who say, well, the Bible speaks to some things and it lays down foundational principles and we're going to use that, but it doesn't speak to everything and so we use what we find through worldly wisdom and kind of put that together with it. And that's a really cool theory. But those integration programs today are the kind of programs that sit with the student or sit with the client and they will not bring up sin. Now, how did you get there? You got there with, with what you called integration, but it's actually syncretism, and that syncretism became something else. And you're losing God's words 
That's a problem. Look where he finds counsel in verse 2. We won't spend this much time on every verse, but look at where he finds the counsel. Not here, not here, not here, but where? Verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, or it can be translated the instruction of the Lord. And on his law, on God's instruction, he meditates day and night. Some of us feel like we haven't gotten value out of God's word of a practical, a practical kind of value. But if we're asked the last time we looked at it, you'd be like, well, last Sunday, I guess. Yeah, well, Sunday oftentimes is the, you know, the supposed expert investigating the passage for you, cutting it into little bite-sized pieces and feeding it to you. Now, that's not wrong. I do that for a living, and I understand that. But does that sound like delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night? If somebody asks you, when's the last time you investigated Scripture to squeeze profit out of it? Running low on dog food yesterday, and I didn't know how soon we'd be able to buy a new bag, so I went into the fridge and I just grabbed some leftovers and I just put some vegetables together and threw it in a pan. I don't always do this for the dogs. We usually use kibble. And I was telling my wife later, like, what did I put in there? The dogs attacked the bowls. Like for an hour later, I'm not exaggerating, an hour later, they would keep coming back to the bowl and just keep licking it, flipping the bowls over. Some of us treat God's word like it's just the vegetables we don't want to eat. Like, uh, well, it's Sunday. I'm supposed to open the Bible, you know. We don't say that, but that's kind of how we treat it. That's not what this sounds like. This person delights in it. They want to do it. They want to keep going. Where is it? I want more. I want more. If we were this desperate, if we were this desperate, we would have more services. We would have more times getting together. We would have more growth groups. We, we would have things that aren't even on the calendars. People randomly meeting up. Could we just go to Starbucks? I want to crack open scripture. We do some of that. We're on our way. This is not a church devoid of that, but I want to encourage you in that. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be delighting in the law of the Lord. And then that delight looks like something. It's meditating on it day and night. And the word there for meditate is not what we might think of meditation, where you cross your legs in an uncomfortable position, close your eyes, and just um for however long and release your mind of things and try to be as blank as possible. That's the opposite. This wants you to populate your mind with Scripture. You don't have to be in a particular pose to do it. The room doesn't have to be dark. But you're taking Scripture, delighting in it, and meditating on it, not by emptying your mind, but by populating your mind with what? God's instruction. What does it say? What does it mean? And not being comfortable going, huh, I don't know what it means. Let me skip to something I find more familiar. Figure it out. You have more resources at your fingertips than any Christian has ever had throughout the entire history of the world. In this place, and this time, right now. If you don't know where to find those, ask. I'll give you all kinds of websites, and we do book giveaways for that reason. Because you don't want to be dependent on a preacher for all of your nourishment. You need to be delighting in the law of the Lord. You need to be meditating on it. I mean, it's interesting. Well, like, when do you have your quiet time? In the morning or the night? When does this dude have his quiet time? Both! 
I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't set it aside. When he has a chance, he does it. What would you call that? You know, like an addiction? Is there such thing as like a healthy addiction? This person is at it all the time, dwelling on it, meditating on it, because if he doesn't, he'll get sucked into the crowd and he'll live according to ungodly counsel. Interestingly, that word meditate, it takes thinking. It takes thinking. And I often think about, you know, God wants us to pursue him, and some of us are not readers. We're just not readers. We don't gravitate toward reading. I understand that. But God in his wisdom has decided to communicate himself to us through reading. Take it up with God. I don't know. If you need to be a stronger reader, practice. It doesn't take 15 degrees to read the Bible. But God demands that you be a reader of the Bible. He demands it. We're not to seek God after God through dreams, through visions, through the shapes of clouds, through cards, the lines in your palm. That, that's not it. It's studying God's word. The word meditate is used in the very next psalm. Drop your eyes down the very next psalm, verse 1. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? Plot. How would you define plotting? Planning, scheming, figuring it out. Does that take thought? It's the same word as meditate in the Hebrew. Hagah. Same word. So again, we need to reimagine, re, uh, redefine what meditate means for us. It takes thought. It takes planning. Just like the nations plot. How do we get God out of our lives? How do we crush him? How do we get rid of God? How do we get rid of his son? We need to be intentional, plotting, scheming, planning about how do I get into God's word? Because that's where I'm going to find counsel. I am not saying you can't go to a professional counselor. I'm saying I'm very skeptical of many of them. And I often think it's cart before the horse. You should be able to go to a counselor and as soon as they start telling you something that doesn't really smack of scripture, you can kind of tell because you know the voice of your shepherd. You spend time with your shepherd and you know the voice of your shepherd. And so when I start feeding you some weird stuff, you can kind of tell. Blessed is the man who seeks counsel in God's word. Not here, not here, not here, but by delighting in the instruction of God all the time, day and night, like there's no time for anything else. People seek out counseling for their lives to prosper, but outside of God's word, they will not. Have those sessions really helped? Well, how Scripture-saturated were those sessions? Was it kind of like, here's three verses, read them, and then we'll see you next week? Or is it, let's go to Scripture and dive into it together and understand what it's saying? Is, that, is your counseling session feel like a Bible study? Great. No? Find somebody else. What are you doing there if not seeking the wisdom of God? And if you're seeking the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God is found in Scripture. I'm not saying there are no counselors who do that. I'm saying there are so many counselors who don't. You need to be careful. You need to be wary of it. Your delight is in the law of the Lord because that's where you find it. Your delight is not in the law of the Lord because you're a bookworm. Your delight is not in the law of the Lord because you like studying ancient languages that aren't spoken anymore. Your delight is in the law of the Lord because there's no other way to prosper. According to this psalm, there's no other way to find blessing. 
So the prosperous life is for those who are constantly drinking in God's word. There's only destruction for those who don't do that. You see that in verses 3 through 6. The person who delights in the word, delights in God's instruction, meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You're like, I feel like I'm not in a season of prospering right now. Back to verse 3. Yields its fruit in its season. Do trees always look like they're fully budded, fully blossomed? No, it goes through seasons, right? That doesn't mean it's a dead tree. Over time, it yields fruit. In its seasons, overall, the leaves come back. They don't wither. The tree doesn't die. In all that the blessed person does, he prospers. Not the wicked. The wicked are not so. The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. It's like when the grain is beaten to separate the, the husk from the kernel that you want to use to make food and to make bread, but the husk, there's nothing to do with it. You want the wind to drive that away when they would thresh it out in the open field. The wicked are like that useless chaff that's to be discarded, to be driven away by the wind. That's their end. Therefore, verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What is the number one distinction between the righteous and the wicked according to this passage? The righteous seek God's counsel in his word, and the wicked don't. You need to be a Bible student because the Bible says that's what a follower of God does. And that's where we need to get our counsel. You're like a tree planted by a water channel. That water channel is the instruction of God's word. So if you're feeling dry, if you're feeling like you're not bearing fruit, the answer is drink deeply from God's word. That's the nutriment to bear the fruit. God's word, God's instruction is the water channel here, and the blessed person is the tree. That's how analogies work. And this person prospers in the biblical way, not always a smooth path, but guided through even the dark times, guided through even the difficulties. That's the whole point of counsel. If everything was always a smooth path, what would, I, what would you ever need counsel for? That's why I started by saying, for us to admit that we need counseling is simply to say, yeah, I don't know how to navigate life. I need God's word to do it. Otherwise, I'm just like without a compass, no GPS. I don't know where I'm going. I'm going to fall off a cliff. We need to recognize that. That's just Christian. But then you need to realize that that compass, that map, that GPS, that guiding light, that lighthouse, whatever analogy you want to use, is God's word, the counsel that we find by meditating on God's word. So we need to take godly counsel, not worldly counsel, because your life and your eternity depends on it. If I sound like I've got a little bit of a pep in my step, that's why. I don't have an axe to ground with Christian counselors because I randomly think it's a field that's annoying to me. It's because your life and your eternity depends on it according to Psalm 1. So this means that counseling is very much the same thing, in my opinion, as discipleship. If I asked you, turn over your paper, whatever you're writing on, and on the other side, just quickly define what discipleship is. How different really would it be than what we've been talking about? 
What is discipleship if not following God? And how do you follow God if not by listening to his words and following his instructions? That is discipleship. That is counseling. And our problem is we've separated counseling over here, discipleship over there. You want to learn how to memorize verses. You want to learn how to do a survey of the Old Testament. You want to parse words and figure out, you know, what Galatians is about. Okay, you could do that here. Ooh, having trouble with your teenage daughter. She's anxious. She's anxiety-ridden. Well, that's over here, not here. What does the Bible have to say about pressures in junior high for girls? A lot. So this separation is what kills us oftentimes. The Bible's good for a couple of things. We need external help for everything else. That's what I want to divest you of this morning. I don't think we can survive with that kind of separation. I think that separation will kill us. And I think what this psalm is telling us is this. If I had to write it down just in one sentence, which I literally did, blesses a person who seeks counsel in God's instruction. You need counsel because you need God's blessing. So to not admit that is already sin. You need God's blessing. And the way to get it is in God's counsel. Because God's counsel is God's instruction. The opposite is destroyed as the person who keeps company with the wicked, who finds their counsel elsewhere. Now seemingly the answer would be, okay, okay, the answer, the response to this is let's build counseling centers outside the church. But the problem is when those counseling centers are detached from the church, we run into issues. We run into issues with that. And so the last point I want to make, and I've got several things to say about it as quickly as I can, but godly counsel is to be sought within the church. I am not telling you, caveat, I'm not telling you it is wrong to seek counseling outside the church. What I am telling you is you've got it completely backwards. If the last person you talk to is someone inside the church, you've already talked to 15 so-called experts outside the church, that is backwards. So first of all, I think we don't know how to discern between good counseling and bad counseling because we're terrible at discerning what God actually says in his word when we relegate it to Sunday-only reading. The second thing is when we go out there and we don't go in here, we've reversed what Scripture prescribes. Godly counsel is to be sought within the church, I would even say primarily. Notice that the blessed person in the beginning of the psalm, he's alone, right? He doesn't, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, plural. It's hard to tell in the English, but the wicked is plural. The blessed person, one person, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, plural. And he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, not in the seat of a scoffer. So seat of scoffers, think of chairs all around, like a council, an assembly of wicked people scoffing. He doesn't sit with them. He's alone. He's ignoring the crowds. He's walking a different path. But then by the time you get to the end, verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They're going to perish. Verse 6. So by the end of the psalm, who's alone now? Where's the person that started out isolated by not going with the crowds, not going with the people, not going with popular opinion? He's not alone, is he? He gets a place in the congregation And if you think congregation means something different than what we mean by congregation, 
That's another sign you don't read your Bible. In the Old Testament, the congregation was literally that, the assembly of the people when they got together to hear the word of God read, to hear the word of God proclaimed, for, to offer, to, for them to offer their sacrifices and to sing their songs. That was the assembly. That was the congregation. And that is an eternal congregation that will go throughout time, even after the destruction of the wicked, because the wicked don't find a seat in that congregation. Only the blessed person finds a seat in that congregation, so that the blessed person really is not alone. The blessed, the blessed person delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. Yes, on their own, but also in the context of the group, of the congregation, of the assembly. The righteous don't want any part of the assembly of the wicked. We're going to put two verses up here really quickly. Psalm 26, they're both in Psalm 26. One is verse 5, one is verse 12. Here's verse 5, I hate the assembly of evildoers and I will not sit with the wicked. There's the group I'm rejecting. Then down to verse 12, my foot stands on level ground in the great assembly I will bless the Lord. So throughout scripture there's this contrast, you can be a part of this group or this group, but you are part of a group. There's no such thing as the isolated follower of God because God covenants with a people. And if you are in relationship with God, you're a part of that group. And throughout the Old Testament, the congregation or the assembly, that's the context for learning, hearing, and singing God's word. So when counsel is sought outside of God's assembly, we run into real problems. Real quickly, I know we're running up on time, but uh, I don't want to cut a sermon short that's about how badly we need God's word. As quickly as I can, seven reasons why. Uh, I think counsel being sought outside of God's assembly is going to run us into problems. And I know we do it. I know we do it. I just want to share my pastoral heart. Sometimes I'll hear of an issue that one of you is dealing with. You've been dealing it with for 12 years. And it's the first I heard of it. It's the first we heard of it. See, that's the separation. Church isn't going to help me with this. I need this person. I need this YouTube personality. I need the person with the office and a couple degrees. Who knows what they taught them there? Now, I'm not saying you can't go to any of those. But when we only come here for a sermon, a little cup, and a neatly broken bread, serve me. But when I really need help, I'm going to get that somewhere else. That's dangerous. Here's seven reasons why. Number one. If counsel, if godly counsel is God's words, which I think we just established, God's counsel is God's guidance, and church is where God's word is studied, read, recited, taught, explained, applied, sung, where officers are trained and commissioned to know God's word and teach God's word, why would we go elsewhere? The only logical answer would be either because we really don't believe that or because we believe our leaders in the church are incompetent to tell us what God's word says. If you think it's that second one, please come talk to me. I know I'm not perfect, and we do need to do a better job of training people up here. If you wonder, why are we doing CFC courses after all this year? For this reason, after all this time, for this reason. We need to study God's word, and everything can't be seven tips to a happy marriage. Sometimes it's going to be like, a oh, walk through the book of Revelation. Because it's scripture. Because God breathed it out, and it's profitable 2 Timothy 3.17. Second reason, because when counsel is sought outside of God's assembly, there's a lack of accountability. 
There's a book called Counsel from the Cross by Elise Fitzpatrick and Dennis Johnson. Counsel from the Cross. I think it's put up by Crossway. On page 48, I got this quote. Listen to this. It might sting. People seem to want to get help anonymously, thereby avoiding the struggle with sin in front of the very people God has placed in their lives to help them. I mean, I underline that like, that's me, that's you, that's us. We all feel that temptation to go to a private counselor because it stays private. Is it really the expertise we're after or is it the anonymity that we're after? If we start spilling guts in the group, what if this person, now this person knows. Every time I come to group, they're going to know, I struggle with this, I have this dream, I have this recurring thing, I have this trauma. But maybe if we start doing that, other people go, oh, this is a safe place. This is a place where I can get help. I can talk about my stuff. And this is why it chafes me when our groups and our discussions kind of stay in the zone of like prayer requests are just like, I have a cold, I have a really annoying office mate, I'm just not sure about retirement. Come on, man. This isn't high school. This is supposed to be where we get the help that we need. And if we're chasing anonymity... No one else knows about it. Think about how many verses run against that. James 5.16 commands us to confess our sins to one another, not keep them private. Keeping it private is in direct contradiction to what James 5.16 says. Galatians 6.1-2 tells us to help each other bear our burdens when we're caught in a trespass. How can I help you bear your burden, the burden in that case being, oops, you failed morally. How can I help you if I don't know it? I don't want to discover it at the water cooler, I want you to pull me aside. Each other. It doesn't always have to be Pastor Lucas. I say, man, I'm, I'm caught in something. I need help. That's the help you need. Not the college buddy. Unless the college buddy is going to point you to God's word. Romans 15, 14 talks about our being a community of teachers. He tells the Romans, hey, even though I haven't been able to come to you like I wanted to, You all are filled with knowledge and are able to instruct one another. Do we see CFC that way? Do we see CFC as a place where I can go to various people and get instruction from the Lord? If not, we're worse off as a church than I might think. But I think we are. We just don't use it. We don't lean into it. We're scared. We have instructors here. I can step away from a pulpit and not reach outside of the church to fill the pulpit. For this size of a congregation, that's an amazing privilege. I don't have to teach all the CFC courses. And in fact, the one that's coming up, I'm not even teaching it. Nathan's teaching it. We have teachers here. We have people that have been Christians for ages, for ages, and have seen all kinds of things. You're worried about a COVID virus? Ask them what they've seen and they've survived. Get counsel from them. They're sitting here. Show up at their Thursday group. Is that welcome, Al? Some people pop in on Thursday group. They love it. They would love it. Go and listen. We have counsel here. We have instruction here. We need to use it more. Uh, this, this relates. The other points are really quick, but this relates. This is, this is key, and it, it might help you with this. because it, If most counseling is private, and let's say your, your issue is with somebody else. How many times does your counseling need have to do with somebody else? Your spouse, your kid, your parent, somebody else. And you go to that counselor, 
and they will not share that with somebody else, that somebody else is not there with you? What's the problem there? The counselor is only getting one side of the story the entire time. How can they possibly counsel you if they only have your jaded perspective? Well, Psalm 18.17 has something to say about that. The one who states his case first seems right until the other one comes and examines him. Isn't that true? You've got more than one kid, you know this immediately. One kid comes to you and is like, oh my goodness, this was terrible. This, they punched me, he punched me, and then kicked me and bit me. And you're like, wow, you're, you're already thinking of punishments for that other kid. Then you talk to the other kid and you're like, you get their side of the story and you're like, wow, I would have bit you too, jerk. Everybody's case seems right until, the other, until they're cross-examined by someone else who was there. But the private counselor never gets to cross-examine. Who gets to cross-examine? The church. If you come to the church and you're like, this other person in the church, I've got, I've got an issue with, I try to solve it and it won't work. The church can go to that other person and say, well, could you corroborate that story? Well, what really happened was this. And we can go somewhere with that. One of the reasons why we stay in this endless cycle of paying $50 a session or whatever it is with these counselors, they never hear any other side of the story. How can they help you? Just on that point alone, it's unbiblical. Third, really quickly, the church should house our counseling because it is the headquarters for the truth. You can look it up later, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And because of that, we need it. Fourth, the church is charged with handling difficult matters. If you read Matthew 18 about the case of the, the person that's got beef with the person and they won't repent and then they've got to bring two witnesses and then they still don't repent and then they take it to the church. You remember that whole passage in Matthew 18? You think that's easy? That's hard. And that's why Jesus appended to that passage the promise where two or three are gathered, there I am with them. That's not about a random prayer meeting. That's about the difficulty of working through relational issues within the church. He knows it's going to be hard. And therefore, he promises to be present with us as we deal with those relational things together. You read through 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, and you're like, this was a church? These people are crazy. They're crazy up in Corinth. And Paul tells them how, as a church, to deal with it amongst themselves. Paul doesn't like send that, send that person to counseling. Figure it out together. And it involves lawsuits sometimes where he tells them, do you guys really have to go to court? Why can't you settle it together? Two Christians should never have to take each other to court. They should be able to settle it together. And if they can't do it together, back to Matthew 18. Have the church come in and talk with you about it. If they're supposedly handling God's word appropriately, they should be able to apply it to your life. Five. It's difficult to see how churches can be tasked by God to bring his counsel to bear on matters of relational conflict, sin, legal action even, between parties, determining something as radically interior to a person as whether they are truly a brother or a sister in Christ, back to Matthew 18. The church is tasked to teach the deep, weighty things of God, discerning between good and evil. And I've got a bunch of verses there. We're supposed to discern between good and evil. That's our job as a church. We can do all that stuff, but we can't help someone who has anxiety. We can do all that stuff, but we can't help someone who's experiencing same-sex attraction. Sorry, go to somebody else for that. We can help all these other difficult areas, but we can't help someone who's substance addicted. If someone who's substance addicted can't go to one of our growth groups and kick the habit, then our growth groups are terrible. There, I said it. 
I don't think you need a 12-step, celebrate recovery. I don't know what's going on with this, but we've got separate things. Oh, you're substance addicted. Go to this separate group. We're all addicted to something. What we need is grace. We need to lean into one another, Galatians 6 style, James 5 style. And we need to be able to apply God's word to people's situations so that they see that it's relevant. Number six, blessed is the person who is not finding counsel in the wicked, but delights in the law of the Lord and stands in the congregation of the righteous. So that means we shouldn't divorce the Lord's counsel from the Lord's assembly. We need to see the church as the primary resource for receiving God's counsel. Finally, number seven, we probably detach Christ's church too easily from practical counsel because we don't understand the way the gospel presses into all of life. So no man, no man, no person, no woman keeps the law of the Lord perfectly. But we have an imputed righteousness because of Jesus Christ. And that's projected in Psalm 1-3 when it says that the tree is planted by a stream. You can literally translate it that the tree is transplanted. It's already a tree, and then that tree is planted by the stream. It's this change. You weren't getting water before, now you're getting water. And that change comes through knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is how you're known by the Lord in verse 6. The difference between the blessed and the wicked is the Lord knows this one, doesn't know that one. And the New Testament bears out that it's knowing Jesus that makes that difference. Psalm 1 presses into all the other psalms by setting it up. You're going to experience all these different things. You're going to experience ups and downs. Sometimes God feels far. Sometimes he comes in to rescue. Sometimes you feel like he's not listening. But if you lean in God's word because of your relationship with Christ, God's, your relationship with Christ, your relationship with Christ positions you to not only understand God's word, but apply it together with others who are also in Christ. And I think as a church, we probably do need to do a better job with training. Uh, but I think we have very competent veteran Christians here. And I would commend to you to book a session with them as a first instinct, not a last instinct. Some of y'all have been seeking for help outside of the church for a long time. Give it a try. Give it a try. I'm not looking for my inbox box to be flooded tomorrow morning. I'm, I'm saying it's not about Pastor Lucas. You're sitting next to people who can instruct you in the law of the Lord right now. But we're scared. And I'm saying, let's just break free from some of these cycles, some of the things we've been trapped in for a long time. Let's break free from them and go for counsel where God tells us to go for it. In God's word, in the context of the congregation. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as I pray. Father.